Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. Just a reminder that I do a monthly Q&A on the second Tuesday of every month at 1.30 p.m. Eastern with Eric Tivers of ADHD Rewired. Go to ADHD Rewired slash events for more details. Also, in celebration of ADHD Awareness Month, I'm offering a special discount on this winter's eight-week ADHD parent coaching groups. The groups will begin in January, but if you register for this early sign-up during the month of October, not only will you lock in your spot, but you'll get one of those eight weeks for free. And October ends next week, so time is running out. Visit ADHDessentials.com slash signup to register for your free pre-screening call. Or go to ADHDessentials.com slash parent groups for more details. All of those links will be in the show notes. This is episode 43. Today, we're talking to Mindy Katz. When Mindy learned that she and her daughter had ADHD, it led to Mindy becoming an ADHD coach and eventually a social worker. She's a big proponent of positive psychology and developing resiliency in our kids and ourselves. In today's episode, we talk about how to manage our sabotaging thoughts, upward spirals of emotion, and the power of curiosity. All right, let's get rolling. My daughter was diagnosed with ADHD. I looked at her and I looked at me and then I said, oh, I think I have a lot in common. So I realized and got diagnosed with um, ADHD myself and I went looking for an ADHD coach and I did that for a while and then I realized that was really something I could do and from there it's really been my calling to, to work with folks with ADHD and help them navigate this issue. And how long have you been doing that? I think it's probably been eight years. I'm calendar challenged, so I can do time in the moment, but in terms of retrospectively, I, I have no idea. So I would say seven, eight years I've been coaching. I have the same calendar challenge. I have friends who can be like, yeah, well, in like 2002, I was doing this. Like, how do you know that? Like, really? Yeah, I'm the same. I, as, and I was just thinking about that this morning because our code for our garage door is our anniversary year. And that is the only way that I have any idea what year we got married. What has it been like working with ADHD folks for the past eight years? Has it contributed to your to helping your daughter, to helping yourself? Is it just a passion that has overtaken you or are you sort of done with it? No, I'm into it. It's been amazing. You know, folks with ADHD really know a lot of stuff, but it's hidden under a lot of garbage, a lot of self-talk, of feeling like they're not doing the right thing and not understanding how their brain works. And so being able to help them understand, to get rid of some of those negative thoughts, the shame, the embarrassment, the, the lazy, stupid, crazy kind of thinking, 
um, is really exciting. And the greatest thing, well, one of the greatest things about working with folks with ADHD is that no two people are alike. So I'm a problem solver. I'm creative. I come up with some wacky things. And I get to play with people and, and do those kind of things on a one-to-one -one individual basis. So it's never dull or boring. It's always exciting. I completely agree. One of my favorite things about ADHD is that it's inconsistent, not just in terms of how productive and successful you are, but in terms of how it presents differently in every individual person that we work with and that we talk to. Exactly. You know, they say if you've met one person with ADHD, you've met one person with ADHD. You can never say, well, oh, my ADHD is like this, so yours must be. You really can't do that because it's just different with everybody. There's very few assumptions we can make. That there's like three of them, right? Like you're probably bad at time. You probably don't sleep that well. And you probably are carrying a decent amount of shame around with you. I would, I would say that's good. And a lot of, um, I call them the gremlin thoughts, the, the self-sabotage, the, the, the voice that says, you know, you're not good enough and you're not doing it right. And everybody else has, has figured it out except you. Yeah, I agree. So being that you're an ADHD coach, what do we do with those self-sabotaging thoughts? So that I think is sort of the foundation when I work with folks is becoming aware of them. I think that is the, the first part of it, knowing that the thoughts that you have are not necessarily true or your own. I like to point out to people their grumbling thoughts because so often we say things and it just goes through us. We don't even notice them. That's a big part of what I do. And it's interesting once you start pointing it out and you start paying attention to it, then, you know, clients can start seeing where, where that happens. And that's where change happens. Awareness is the only way you can make change to know what you're doing. So you can change your habits of thought and, and action. You mentioned that sometimes the thoughts are not even our own. What does that mean? So sometimes they're, um, it's like they're like a, a recording. Sometimes if you listen to some of the things that you're thinking, often you can hear other people's voices. Very frequently, you know, mother's voice comes in or a voice sometimes from when you were a teenager or a different part of your life. So it's just things we've heard other people say to us continuously that we've sort of internalized in our own internal dialogue. So they're not even necessarily our own thoughts. It's not like, oh, I think this, therefore it is true. It's very often thoughts that, voices that, you know, come from other places. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. I know for me, one of my, one of my thoughts that didn't belong to me was a, a former boss that I had. And at some point I was like, wait a minute, that's, what, that's where that's coming from. Like, that's from that boss at that job that I did not do so great in. And I know me better than that boss did. And this thought is not valid. Like I'm better than that. There's a lot of also negativity thoughts that we have that sort of society brings on us. I think, you know, um, things never work out. Nothing goes my way. I always pick the wrong line at the grocery store. The, you know, catastrophizing. Oh, one thing happens, everything's going to be bad. My day has been terrible. One thing happened, nothing's going to be good. That all or nothing, black and white kind of thinking kind of stuff too. It just doesn't work. It doesn't serve us. Not at all. And it's habit. It's, it's a habitual way of thinking. This sort of connects us to a certification that you've earned 
around positive psychology. Right. A few years ago, I completed a program, a two-year program, a certificate in positive psychology, which is designed by um, Tal Ben-Shahar. He was a Harvard professor. He taught the the, um, most popular class at Harvard back in the day, and it was on positive psychology, helping people to to live better lives and flourish. And is that what positive psychology is? Could you sort of walk us through just the basic definition of it? Sure. Well, positive psychology is one of the disciplines of psychology. It's relatively new. It's research-based, and they're looking at what helps people flourish. You know, so much research goes on about what is bad, you know, what is terrible in people, what causes problems. And this branch of psychology is really looking at helping people find what will help them have a better life. So sort of, we know what doesn't work. Let's start looking at what does work. Exactly. And, you know, it started as, you know, from baseline, people who are just average, you know, how to make their lives better, how to, how to help them have more positivity in their lives. And um, as it's grown, it's branched out to not even people who are at baseline. It can pull people with depression and anxiety and, and all those kind of things. It just helps everybody. Given that we have people listening who, are, who have ADHD, whose kids have ADHD, whose families are affected by ADHD, what are some positive psychology concepts or theories that we can apply to our lives to help manage ADHD more effectively? One of the things that folks with ADHD um, tend to have is a lot of negative thoughts and a lot of negative feelings about themselves and the things that they do. In general, all of us have a negativity bias where um, we're looking at the negative. We give the negative in our lives more weight. And folks with ADHD who are starting ahead of the, you know, behind the curve already, they're not operating the same way everybody else does. It feels like they're not good enough and and that kind of thing. Um, I like the work of Carol Dweck who talks about mindset and she talks about people having two different kinds of mindset, a growth mindset and a fixed mindset. And it's better to have a growth mindset because the growth mindset helps people feel like they can always learn and do better. A fixed mindset is, you know, I'm only going to be this way. And if I'm not, if I don't succeed, there must be something wrong with me. So the fixed mindset focuses on the outcome. Um, I got an A, I passed, um, I'm queen of the hill. And uh, a growth mindset is focused on the process. How did you get there? What did you learn along the way? And so to help our children have that growth mindset that um, they can always get better is to to notice and, and pay attention to the process. So not, oh boy, you got an A, or oh crap, you got an F. It's more like, so how did you get there? Mm-hmm. And in, even if you get an F, the process may have included a lot of hard work. So let's focus on the hard work. You are a hard worker. That will get you where you want to go. It also helps with resilience. You know, if you, if you fall down, you want to be able to keep getting up. If you feel like you can always do better, even if you fall down, you might learn something from it and be able to get up and do it again even better. You know, great inventions didn't come overnight. Success stories didn't come without hard work, but often all we see is the final picture. And if we look at the hard work and we appreciate that for in other people and ourselves, 
we can always keep moving forward and feel better about ourselves. Having a fixed mindset was one of my challenges. And I had it, I sort of had it in two layers. One was me, and I had to fail a lot in order to get the growth mindset. It's just the way I had, I had to learn it was, oh, I failed and the world didn't end. And I still have a house and my wife is still married to me and like things are okay. Yep. I can pick myself up and keep moving forward. That wasn't as hard as I sort of put a fixed mindset on other people. And it took this one took me a while to figure out. I tended to operate under the assumption that if I messed up, the person who observed me messing up would decide that I was just a screw up. Mm-hmm. So you also incorporated some mind reading into that. Yeah, that is absolutely the thing that happened. Which was tricky because doing the mental health ADHD coaching kind of stuff, I'm not that bad at mind reading. Like I'm kind of accurate with it a lot of the time, which uh-huh. is not, not helpful. And so I had to learn, I had to unlearn that. First, I had to become aware, like you mentioned. I had to become aware of that pattern of assumptions that I tended to make. Mm-hmm. And then I had to pull back on that. And it's still something that every now and then flares up on me. And I try to plug my growth mindset in then. Like, oh, I can't do that today, but tomorrow I will not be making these assumptions. And, you know, for me, um, I just, I just finished going back to school. I just got a master's degree and, and I'm not a spring chicken. I have had to realize that the one way I learn best is by failing. Mm -hmm. So when I make a mistake or if I do something wrong, that helps me to remember. It, It makes the learning more salient, palatable, very often, the failure is the best learning experience for me. When I make mis- and failure is sort of a, a, a big, laden, loaded word. But when I make mistakes, I learn much better than if I get it right the first time also. Especially with that growth mindset, right? Like if we can, because the growth mindset helps us manage the emotional side of that mistake too, because it's not a catastrophe. Right. And that helps with resiliency. You know, if you can get back on the horse and say, okay, I did it this way last time. Let me try do it something a different way this time. And not worrying about as much about how we're going to, you know, whether we succeed or fail, you know, how, you know, pass fail kind of thing. I've worked with people who sort of have that perfectionist tinge. And like, if I don't clean my whole room, even if I spent an hour doing something, that doesn't count. And with the growth mindset, every little bit counts because it, it moves you towards your goal. It moves you to where you want to go. Cleaning a room up, every little bit is moving you towards your goal. So it's not all bad because the room isn't all clean. Let's recognize what was done. And that often encourages more of the same behavior also. That progress over perfection is valuable. So in terms of resilience, Uh how can we foster that in our kids? Noticing when they have been resilient, asking them how did they get, how did you get through tough times? How did you um, pick yourself back up the last time? Reminding them that they they have been able to move on and um, how did they do that? Having a cheerleader, you know, we have a great opportunity as parents to tell our children what their strengths are and um, to notice those strengths and to feed that back to them and to to keep them looking on the positive 
end of, of life, using those things certainly can help our children get back up after they fall. And talking about what did you learn, not focusing on you fell off, but so what are you going to do differently next time? How are you going to use this to serve you in the future? So focus on the learning that goes into the success or the failure. What did you learn from it? Another researcher in positive psychology that I draw a lot from is Barbara Fredrickson, who talks about upward spirals of emotions. And, uh, you know, usually we focus on the downward spiral or our tendency is to go towards the downward spiral, which is, you know, one thing goes bad, then slowly but surely we descend into everything's bad. Mm-hmm. And she talks about the upward spiral of emotions. So if, if we help our children have more positive experiences and positive emotions, we can help them move in an upward emotional, healthy place. And that gives them sort of money in the bank for when they do have hard times so that they can draw on those positives to help sustain them so that they don't sink so low or that they're able to rebound more quickly. One of the things that I keep threatening to do with my kids and they keep fighting back just hard enough that I haven't done it yet, mm-hmm. but eventually it's going to wind up happening. I'm going to wear them down slowly but surely is, uh, do you remember like elementary school when you had those little paper chains that you would make? Uh-huh. My thought is to take, cause one of my kids in particular is a little, went through a phase. He's out of it now, but he went through a phase and he was like, everything is bad and the world stinks and nothing is good and all that kind of stuff. And then I proved him wrong by concocting some positive experiences for him that were big enough that he had to sort of reevaluate what his perspective was. But one of the things I keep talking about doing is making a paper chain of good memories Uh that just gets, you know, just make some paper chains that are not looped yet. Write down the positive memory on it, create that loop, and then add to it as the days go by, as we have a good weekend or whatever, win a soccer game or something. It just seems like a really concrete way to reinforce that notion of like, look, this is the cool stuff you've done. And it can be a good memory. It can be a time you were resilient. It could be any number of... Makes it very tangible. That, and that was my objective was because when I came up with this idea, my son was seven or eight years old. But it was just a way, like you said, to make it as concrete as possible. A practice from positive psychology that would link in with that would be um, every night at bedtime, you know, ask them to name three good things that happened to them. And then how did you contribute to that? What was your contribution? And that's right from, you know, Martin Seligman's early work. And he's the father of positive psychology. And that was, you know, some of the early work that he did found that that really can help change folks' mindset and their views. One of the things that I found as a coach, when I first started, people would sort of come in and slam into the chairs, sink down and like want to be ready to tell me everything that was wrong in their lives. And so I changed. I said, well, the way we start is I want to hear what's going well. Most everybody struggles with that for the first few sessions. Isn't that interesting? What goes, what's going well? It's so hard to draw. And um, if you were to say what, what, what crap happened this week, people would be able to list a million things all at once. You have to work harder to, to find the positive. And uh, once they get primed, like, oh, I have to notice these things because I'm going to have to tell Mindy what's going well. I have to start tracking the positive. And it becomes easier and easier as time goes to train yourself that there's an expectation that we're going to focus on the positive. 
I have a, a daughter who's 27 now and she often calls, you know, I get the phone calls when things are not going right. But every once in a while I get a call, mom, I want to tell you what's going well, because I know that's what you really want to hear. <laughs> so it, it does, it does trickle down. And even when she's venting to me or whatever, we always look for what's, what's going well. That gets me thinking about how we respond to positive news versus negative news. Uh-huh. Um, so I'm wondering what role that plays in it. Oftentimes, someone shares something negative and we kind of commiserate with that. Mm-hmm. Oh, that sucks. That's the worst. I, that, something like that happened to me. Positive news, we don't always react as strongly to. Sometimes we have trouble celebrating that for someone else. Sometimes we have trouble connecting to it, depending on what it is. So where does positive psychology advise in that area? To my way of thinking, that strong reaction to negative news is going to reinforce sharing negative news. And the sort of uncertain response that can sometimes come with positive news would disincline someone to share positive news as often. I couldn't grab something, any studies in particular right now in positive psychology that addresses that. However, I can talk about it in a little bit different way. You know, folks who use their strength of curiosity, how did you get that positive response um, or that, how did that positive thing happen? I mean, I think that can bring out more positivity and, and celebrate what's going well. In our culture, there's a taboo. There's a, a discouragement about talking about yourself and bragging about yourself. So sometimes we don't do it because people will think that, you know, we're just showing off, you know, so that might have something to do with it rather than um, celebrating. They think of it as bragging or um, that other word that I can't think of. I like the notion of using curiosity to help someone celebrate their good news. That's a really solid strategy. Like, because sometimes we don't know what to say. I've had people sit, come up to me and be like, I went to the South of France And I'm just like, man, I haven't, like, I went to Canada. Like, I'm not doing (laughs) international travel on the same plane that you are. Well, what's interesting is that instead of going to them, our first response is to go to us. Right. And that happens with the negative, too. If you've ever tried to talk to somebody about some experience you've had that's difficult, very often people go into problem solving and they go into oh, this is what happened to me. So we're really pretty bad listeners just in general. Very often, you know, we're like, oh, well, this is how it connects to me. And so it becomes more of a commiseration or it can seem like, you know, a competition. Oh, well, mine is even worse than yours. Or instead of really listening to each other, we're not, we're really not good listeners. So curiosity is is a good strength to have to be a good listener and to really hear what people are saying. I mean, that's a phenomenal reminder of how to, how to properly respond to both good and bad news from someone. It's not about you. It's about that other person. And listening and curiosity also go with the growth mindset. We want to know more about it. We want to know how, how it happened, not just, not just celebrating the success, the finale, the end of the race. We want to know what went into it because that's really what we value. And connected to that growth mindset, you had sort of implied as you talked about the growth mindset and helping kids reflect on their experiences, you mentioned a few times that we should focus on the process 
How did you get there? What did you do? How did you do it? Is that the plan that we should be focusing on the process of the thing rather than the end result? Yes, I, th- I think that's it really in, in a nutshell, is the difference between the growth and fixed mindset is, to, is focusing on, on that process because that's where we learn. How do I encourage my kid to succeed if I'm not focusing on whether they succeeded or not? Depends on your definition of success. So success for some people is getting up and out of bed in the morning. And each step could be a success rather than the whole end product. The success may not be reaching a certain bar or reaching a certain expectation that you have. It could be, you know, how to get to that place. What would you say is uh, successful for your children? I'm trying to play the role of the skeptical parent in this question. Okay. So let's say that my kid has 20 vocabulary words that they need to memorize. And to me, success is an A. So they can only get two wrong at the most. Okay. If I'm not saying like, you have to know all the words, I'm just focusing on the process. Am I running a greater risk that they're going to get a C minus because I'm not focusing on getting the A? If you're just focusing on the end, you're not giving your child the tools to get there. And nobody learned to walk right out of the gate. I mean, Mm -hmm. if you look at a one-year-old or a 10-month-old and they're learning to walk, they didn't like stand up and start walking, right? They first just hold on to things, then you hold on and you celebrate each step of the way and then they take a step and, ah, you go crazy. It's, It's a process that makes them want to achieve. If you just said, I'm not gonna celebrate this child until they're walking perfectly, well, it's going to take them longer. It's going to be harder. If you don't model balance and walking, you're not going to help your child get there. Just telling someone to get an A um, does not give them the tools to, to make that achievement. And if your child is not finding success in spelling or whatever, there's something wrong with the process or there's something that needs to be explored because children want to be successful. Nobody goes and says, you know, I really don't want to learn at school. You know, no, no first graders. They're going, I, I don't want to learn anything. They want to, they want to learn. People want to be interested and, and, and want to achieve. So if something is not happening, if your child is not able to memorize their spelling, use that as an example. Well, maybe they're not being taught well, Maybe they have a learning disability. Maybe there's a different way. My daughter, it's funny you bring up spelling. My daughter always had trouble memorizing spelling or vocabulary words. So her, she loved to dance. And she's a very you know, active, kinetic, physical, hands-on learner. So we did vocabulary in dance steps. When she had to remember vocabulary words, she danced them. And that created um, a different way for her to learn. So, you know, just assuming that everybody's brain works the same or works like yours is, yours does. I can give you an example. In my life, my mother is a numerical genius. You could give her 25 numbers. She can add them up in her head. I can't even hold five numbers in my head. And she could never understand why I couldn't memorize the times table. I still don't know. If you ask me seven times six, 
I would still have to count it on my fingers because I just have no idea. Allowing those differences and being creative and knowing that just because it's easy for us one way, that's our strength, isn't necessarily the way it works for other people. So it sounds like focusing on the process might not win the battle. It might not get us the A in that first vocabulary quiz or spelling quiz, Mm -hmm. but it'll help us win the war because we're going to keep getting spelling quizzes. We're going to keep getting vocabulary quizzes and in the long run, we'll know what to do with them. Exactly. Thank you for summing that up so nicely. It's it's my job as the host. (laughs) You're very hospitable. (laughs) Now you mentioned that you're moving into social work. Yes. Which is sort of expanding out from just ADHD into a larger world of mental health. Are you finding that your ADHD coaching has helped with the social work? Yes, 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 yes. One of the reasons that I decided to go for the MSW is because I had a a lot of clients that had comorbid conditions. So along with ADHD, there was anxiety, there was depression, there was a history of trauma. And I really wasn't prepared or able to deal with those things. And so I felt like in order to serve my clients better, I needed more education. And conversely, I have found that my experience as a coach, and in a lot of ways, coach training is very good for when you're in the trenches, when you're talking to people, when you're asking powerful questions, all those kind of things. That that was very good for me. My approach to ADHD informs a lot of my approach the same approach that can be used for many of these other issues that you have for anxiety, depression, you know, mindfulness is very important for those also. And I already have incorporated that into working with ADHD folks, the emotional dysregulation that goes with ADHD. That's what anxiety and depression are is emotional dysregulation. So I just feel like the blending of the two really expanded my skill set and my perspective. Each one informed the other. How was going back to school? It was challenging and good. I'm a lifelong learner, so I'm always wanting to know what's new and interesting. I have a lot of passions and always want to grow. So that for me is, is awesome. And to be around people who are interested and I can ask crazy questions and challenge people. It was very cool to go back to school as a gray-haired adult because I had a little swagger that I could like challenge professors and I could ask things that the younger students would feel intimidated a little bit. So I was a little bit irreverent with my professors, which they seemed to tolerate for the most part. Um, The hard part was writing and studying and keeping on track with that. I could have never gone back to school had I had a family personally. My, I have a very narrow bandwidth, and I know that I can only have so many things going on at one time. I needed to be able to like spend Saturdays and Sundays with big blocks of time to do the things that I needed to do. So my weeks were very full with class, classroom, and I had internships both semesters. So my weekends were spent doing that kind of writing and studying and all that kind of stuff. And, it's, and your kids are grown and out of the house now, I take yeah, it. Yeah, 27 and 31. Yeah, yeah. so that's, that's what opened up the bandwidth, I guess. Yes, exactly. That's about the time, you know, when they left, that's when I started coaching and 
um, but it was, it was time for, for some, some major growth experience. Well, awesome. I'm glad that you had the growth that you needed. Yes. I'm always looking for something new and exciting. It's, I it's think that, that growth mindset. Well, that's also part of the ADHD. You know, there's always something, something new around the corner, something new to learn. So just being mindful of time, do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience? There's one visual that I think has always been very powerful for me in terms of mindset. And um, that's Alan Brown. And I'm going to, something Alan has, um, a graphic that he has published. So I'm going to try and describe it as best as I can. So there's a seesaw and um, one side is low and one side is high. On the high side are several boxes. And on the low side, which has a lot of weight to it, holding the whole thing down, is one little box. And in the big box, each big box says success, wonderful, good things that happened. And on the, the side that's down is fail. And what happens is that little box of fail in our life has so much more density and weight that we tend to focus on that and it, it takes everything out of balance. If you look and see all the great things that happen in your life or in the course of a day, you know, 95% of your day could be fine. There could be some great things that happen. But when we close your eyes at night or when you lay down in, at night, what are you thinking of? That 1% that went wrong. Or I wish I said that differently. Or I wish that happened differently. I think the crux is to work on your mindset to more positive, to, to start looking and noticing the positive things that happen on purpose as a habit so that that box of fail, the box of fail becomes lighter and lighter and the box of success becomes heavier and heavier and there's much more of a weight given to the good things and the positive things that happen in the course of a day, a week, a month, a year. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com. And visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.